Hello and welcome to the SaaS Growth Podcast. This week we're here with Jeff Roberts, one of the founders of Outsetter.com. Outsetter is an all-in-one platform for managing a subscription-based business. This week, Jeff shares his insights on growing an infrastructure-based company and lets us into his marketing secrets when it comes to growing SaaS businesses. I hope you enjoy. We're here today with Jeff Roberts, a founder of Outsetter. How are you today, Jeff? I'm great, Carl. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, Let's start from the top. So how did Outsetter come to be? Outsetter was born out of my very first job out of college. Uh, I found myself rather accidentally um, leading the marketing team at an early stage SaaS startup. And as a non-technical person myself, uh, I was sort of pulling on the shirt sleeves of the co-founder of the company. His name is Dimitri, and he's now my co-founder at Outsetter. Um, saying, hey, Dimitri, we need to integrate Stripe with HubSpot, with Zendesk, with ChartMogul, with MailChimp, all these different tools that are used in the context of running an early stage SaaS or subscription business. And at one point, Dimitri just kind of threw his hands up and he was like, you know what, I'm spending just as much time integrating all these tools that our business relies on as I am doing what I actually should be doing, which is building our software. We recognized there was an opportunity cost there. And long story short, Dimitri ended up building a very simple version uh, of what would become Outsetta. We used it until we scaled that business to about $6 million a year in revenue. And we turned around and kind of scratched our heads when we were ready to work on something new and said, you know what, if you're building a e-commerce store, there's things like Shopify that make it easy for you to get started. There's no parallel if you're building a SaaS or membership type business, that's going to be our next project. So that's where Outsetter all came from. And just for context, Outsetter is a all-in-one CRM billing, emails, help desk, and authentication, right? That's right. Yeah. So the idea is it could be a few things. It could be a SaaS product. It could be an online community. It could be content, but you want to monetize that thing that you've built. And typically all of these businesses need really the same core tools. It's a billing system to accept payments, an authentication solution to log you into your SaaS product or community or website, CRM email and help desk tools to kind of manage and grow the business. Those were really the common denominator features that we found all of these subscription businesses needed. So that's what we deliver in our platform. You guys have been running for quite a long time too, right? Seven years? Just over seven years now, yes. In that time, there must've been a lot of changes throughout Outsetter and a lot of sort of initiatives. So what do you think you've done that was most impactful growing Outsetter and gaining traction? Yeah. So in in some ways, very little has changed, to be honest with you. Um, One of the things that is maybe different about Outsetter than a lot of startups are relatively unique is the reason why we chose this idea specifically. We were looking for a startup idea that was something big and difficult, but also something that was durable. And when I say durable, I mean the need for what we're building wasn't going to go away. We wanted something we could kind of sink our teeth into for 10, 15, 20 years. So as we considered this idea, we said, people are always going to need payments. People are always going to need CRM. People are always going to need email marketing. And if you look back over that seven-year period, our strategy really hasn't changed at all. It's just been such a big product and we're bootstrapping it. It takes a long time for it to come to fruition and mature and all those sorts of things. So in many ways, we've been very, very steadfast with the strategy and what we're building. And it's just about chipping away on this product idea 
until the product gets better and better and better. And, you know, on the marketing front, same thing. How do we make, you know, continued traction in these markets that are already very, very competitive? I was looking through your site and I was very impressed with all the sort of detail and initiatives you have. Like I was, I was on your blog, I was reading all, like all your very useful articles. Thank you. Uh, what do you think is your most effective sort of marketing strategies for Outsider? Yeah, so there's two that immediately come to mind. And the first one is perhaps a bit abnormal in the sense that it's actually effective for us. So far and away, our number one marketing strategy, customer acquisition strategy, et cetera, uh, is just me blogging about my own entrepreneurial experience and building in public, you know, very popular these days, but it does get a bad rap sometimes because building in public is a nice way of sharing what you're working on, you know, with your audience or with other people that might be building companies. But if your target audience, you know, isn't building stuff themselves, they just don't care. It's probably not going to show up in terms of customer acquisition for you. Outside is unique in that our target customer is me. It is another founder who is building another software startup. So when I write about my own experience and the things I'm struggling with and the things we've figured out, that's interesting content to our target audience. They come to know our business. And then when they're looking for solutions to the problems that we solve outside of is top of mind. So far and away, that is our biggest customer acquisition strategy. It's just like, talk about what we're doing and, and we get customers from it. The other strategy in general that's been really important to us is just integration partnerships. So Outseta doesn't actually help you deliver your, your product or your website or your community or whatever it is that you're building. The ethos of the company is build your thing however you want to build it. And then you integrate with Outseta and we give you sort of an engine to, to power that business. So integration partnerships with Stripe and Webflow specifically have been huge for us. You need to use Stripe in order to use Outseta and process payments with Outseta. And Webflow is sort of the website builder or front end that we're most often integrated with. So just having a presence on each of their websites has been uh, really effective for us too. You also have an affiliate partner program. How does that work? Yeah, so we use a product called Rewardful uh, for the actual management of the affiliate program. But the idea is simple. Uh, basically, anybody can be a, a sales rep for Outsider, so to speak. Um, if you want to create content about us, if you want to promote us or refer us to people, we pay out a 25% commission, which is pretty typical of affiliate programs. But the things that are different about ours are, are twofold. First and foremost, we pay out that commission forever. So if you do refer business to us, you're going to earn that commission as long as the person you referred remains an Outsider customer. Most affiliate programs cut you off after 12 months or something like that. So they don't have to pay that commission in perpetuity. And then secondarily, our product is inexpensive. So a 25% commission on our subscription fees isn't going to make you that much money. But you also get that commission on the money that we make from payment processing revenue, which is really how we make money as a business. If our customers process payments, we take a 1% fee on the transaction volume that, that they process. So the idea is if you refer somebody to us that goes on to have some financial success, you're earning commissions on their financial success in perpetuity as well. And the program can become pretty lucrative that way. Let's move on to Jeff's marketing experiments.com, right? Which is, so we we're talking about your, um, the way you were advertising and building in public. And it seems to have been packaged up in Jeff's marketing experiments. What sort of content do you have on there? And how did that come to be? 
So Jeff's marketing experiments is me just trying to demonstrate to our customers how quick and easy it is to get started with building a membership site, essentially. So it is just a card website. If you're not familiar with card, it's uh, C-A-R-R-D.co. You can build 10 websites for $19 a year. It's just a really, really simple tool hooked up to an Outsetta account. And the idea here is I am sharing in real time the things that I am doing to grow Outsetta. So there's tons of people you know, building in public. There's tons of courses that you can buy from gurus of all types. What I saw as an opportunity was not a course, but the ability to sort of follow along in real time you know, as we're, as we're building our company and and sharing what I'm doing, it's free for our customers. It is a a one-time fee for anybody that's not a customer, but I literally like wake up every day and I'm like, what did I do in marketing today? And then I'll, you know, write a little lesson and say, this is what I'm thinking about. This is the tactic. This is why I think it might work. Here are the results. Um, And you can kind of follow along as we, we grow our business. Have you got good feedback from subscribers around just marketing experiments? Yeah, it's been great. I think people are um, sort of surprised to see what's going on. Like, as we're thinking about it, a lot of our customers and people that follow our business, you know, they they see our marketing out in the wild. They see our social media posts. They see the product launches that we do and things like that. But sort of having the curtain peeled back and the ability to see the thought behind it and the work that went into it and those sorts of things has been helpful. And I I tell everybody, you know, these are experiments run in the context of our business, they probably don't apply directly to your your industry or your product or you know all the nuances of your business. But the idea is there should be a spark of inspiration in there. Like what is the thinking behind this strategy that you can then take and apply to your own business? Do you have any sort of marketing tips for SaaS businesses in general? <laughs> I have two two things that immediately come to mind. One is I am a big believer that you can make almost any marketing channel work for your business. Uh, I think we have sort of come into this point in time where it's very popular to experiment with different tactics, different formats, whatever it might be, and then move on very quickly if they don't work. I think in reality, if you look at most businesses, you could pick almost any channel. It could be paid ads, it could be social media, it could be email marketing, it could be SEO and make those channels work for you. It's about picking one and sticking with it until you develop and sort of optimize that channel to the point that it it actually delivers leads and delivers customers. And people are too quick to, to sort of give up and, and don't invest enough time in developing one channel. Now, certainly you don't, you know, want to pick a channel where obviously your target customer doesn't live. If your target customer is not on Twitter, don't choose Twitter. But if you make a sensible bet and you stick with it, I think consistency is ultimately like the secret to marketing that that nobody wants to uh, sort of admit or lean into. The second thing I would say is less of a marketing tactic, but more of a way to approach growth within the context of a SaaS business specifically. And it's a framework. It's not mine. Uh, It comes from Mark Roberge, who's the former CRO of HubSpot. And he says, you need to focus on customer success first, unit economics second, and then growth third. And if you unpack that, the idea is the first thing you need to do is figure out how to make your customer successful by any means. It does not need to be scalable. It can be you on the phone with them for hours. Whatever it takes, you have to figure out how to make them successful with your product. 
Only once you've figured that out, do you move on to unit economics, which is, can you do this cost effectively? Can you do this in a scalable way? Can you do this in a way where it financially makes sense and you have a business model that works? Only once you've done that, do you turn around and focus on growth and say, okay, we need to try new channels, pour more money into this furnace that's going to grow our business, et cetera. And if you just follow that path, you will avoid so many of the headaches that kill SaaS businesses in short. What everybody does instead is they launch an MVP and they go immediately to growth, skipping the customer success part, skipping the unit economics part. You see high churn rates, you see companies burn cash, and ultimately that's their demise. So just making sure you work through things in that order and then focus on consistency are the two biggest piece of advices I can give to other entrepreneurs. Moving back to about SETA, you guys have a really interesting, it's called a people-focused way that you run the company, especially around uh, the way you share equity and handle time off and all that sort of stuff. So what led you to the way you run out SETA? So let me describe what it is first, and then I'll tell you where it came from. We call it sort of a make-your-own-adventure working policy, and there's there's sort of three big pieces of it. The first one is anyone at Outsetta can choose to work one to five days per week. Second part is everybody is paid the same. If you work one day a week, it's $42,000 a year. If you work two days a week, it's $84,000 a year. All the way up to a full-time salary, five days a week is $210,000 per year. That's the same for everybody in the company. That's what we pay. You can, you can take it or leave it and then choose how many days you want to work. And then the third bit is everybody also has the opportunity to earn equity on the exact same terms as our founders. So you can say, I want to work three days per week for, for cash and one day a week earning equity in the business. And ultimately, how much ownership you have in the business is determined by how much you've chosen to work for equity. So those are kind of the three pieces and, and sort of where did it all, all come from? There's a few places it comes from. Um, in terms of working one to five days per week, the people that are going to be successful at Outsetta are entrepreneurs they're themselves. They're, they're people that love startups. They're people that like trying new stuff and trying new projects. And we wanted to make space for people to work on other things aside from Outsetta to the extent that they want to. And the other part of that is me just saying, I would rather have somebody incredibly talented working on Outsetta two days per week than just hiring like a junior employee five days a week. I, I really think we can take the company further if we have really great people involved to the extent that they want to be involved. The actual pay rate, um, there's no like perfect formula behind the pay rate, but generally we're trying to keep the company intentionally small. And we think the $210,000 salary is a, is a good salary that's going to attract really excellent people. So we're saying let's hire, you know, 20 A players as opposed to a much larger organization of 150 people that's kind of more dispersed in terms of talent and skill levels. And then the equity piece point blank is a reaction to just what we see in tech. Whenever there is a big successful tech company, it tends to be the investors and the founders that make out like bandits and everybody else doesn't get treated that well, uh, even in the case of really good outcomes so much of the rewards goes to the founders and the investors. We looked around and said, we want to create an environment where if we win as a company, all of the employees win in a pretty big material way. So those are really the, the motivations behind the model. Have you had any challenges around sort of the way you've run your business? I think generally 
the scalability of the model is the big question. It has worked scarily well, I would say, but we are a small team. We're six, seven people today. And I recognize that using this sort of model in the context of a small team is much, much easier than if we were to get bigger. On the flip side of that, we don't really want to get bigger. The whole point is we want to stay at, say, 20 people or or under. But that is certainly the biggest challenge. I would say the other thing is we're a completely flat organization. There's no bosses. There's no hierarchy. There's no one telling you what to do. The basic concept is we hire the very best people that we can and sort of set them free to contribute to the business wherever they best can. I think that's freeing. It's very attractive to really talented people, but it does mean we need to make extra deliberate efforts to make sure we're all rowing in the same direction. So everybody at the company is an owner. Everybody has access to all of the same information. And we need to work really hard to ensure that's always the case and that we're crystal clear on where we're trying to go or else we can all you know, run off in slightly different directions. So um, just maintaining that alignment is, is probably the biggest challenge. How do you go about maintaining that, that direction and fostering your culture, especially as a decentralized team? I think the big thing, to be honest with you, is the ownership piece. The idea, and it, it sounds very, very simple, but I, I think it makes logical sense. If we give everybody all of the same information, and if we truly give them ownership in the company, they should be motivated to grow this thing. Like <laughs> uh, that, that is what creates the alignment. It's here's all the info. We're all in this together. We all have a lot of skin in the game. With those two pieces, if you're not rowing in the same direction, that means there's some disconnect on strategy or what you think we need to do to go in the right direction. We need to talk about that. But we are all on the same page because we literally have skin in the the same game to a large extent. Um, And I think that that really drives a lot more alignment than people might think. In regular organizations where people just don't have that much skin in the game, you get a lot more politics in terms of, you know, who's getting the promotion and who's not. It's much more likely that employees get recruited away because there's bigger prizes elsewhere. Here, everybody kind of knows the name of the game up front and they have an opportunity to participate in the success of the company just so much more than you typically would in a more normal tech model. With this flat structure and everyone contributing how they can, how do you know when to grow the team? This is one of the challenges of our of our model too. We sell a low price point product and we pay people pretty well. So in order to hire, we need to grow revenue a lot. And it means that we are always feeling a little bit under-resourced. Uh, it means we hire when it hurts. And I think it, it really comes down to like, how far can we take it before we sort of have to hire. And then we just look at the most immediate need in the business. Is it we need another engineer? Is it we need more help and support? Is it we need more help in marketing? There's no magic recipe beyond that. But I think it's pretty acutely aware to everybody in the business where those needs lie most direct. You know, we're, we're never really arguing about where the next hire should focus. It's usually pretty obvious. Has Outset been facing any other troubles, especially around like the bootstrapping or the way that your business is structured? Yeah, I'd say there's two things that are tough. One is we've bootstrapped this enormous product. It's really more like five products than one product. 
Uh, and that just means our, our timetables for everything are very extended. And to be perfectly honest, if I could go back to day one, I probably would not choose to bootstrap this exact idea. Uh, it just took us, you know, two years to deliver an MVP. We struggled in year three. It took four, five, six years for this business to really get going into something meaningful. And that's just a long period of time that was, you know, painful for me, painful for our team to, to sort of focus on something for so long without really reaping the rewards. Now, I'm the first to tell you we're in a better position for it today, but I think there's a conversation there around like, does what you're trying to build fit your model of funding the business? And I think in our case, the answer early on was honestly no. So that's something that I would think about. And certainly even to this day, you know, we move more slowly than a venture-backed company. It's just a reality of how we've chosen to, to build the business. The other bit I would say is support. So Outseta's sort of ethos is build your product, build your website, build your community using whatever tool you like best, then we plug in and can, can power your, your business. But that means we integrate with every development framework under the sun, every website builder, every community tool, all these different products. And while we've made the integration process as simple as we possibly can, there's always nuances when you're integrating with different technologies. And that results in a lot of support. We do a lot of handholding early on with our customers as they integrate our product. And you can look at that through the lens of its customer success, and it actually is, but there's also sort of a tailwind on our business where we're not able to invest as much time in marketing or product or whatever it might be because we're investing a lot of time in support. Something I've heard from other companies that build, especially for SaaS and are very core to their services and become part of their infrastructure is that they have a really hard time building trust or enough trust, especially early on to overcome the initial resistance. How did, how did that set a manage that early on? Yeah, very, 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 very difficult problem. Um, you know, it goes back to this idea of in the, in the 90s, I think the, the phrase was nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Um, it's like, it's the same concept today. It's like, why would you not use Auth0 and Stripe? These are these, you know, companies that have been around forever that are the solid choices and you can de-risk your business by making those sorts of choices. I completely understand where that comes from. I don't disagree with it. And it was one of the hardest things for us to overcome early on. I'd say a few things helped. One was we really started out building subscription management for Stripe and essentially what Stripe billing has become today because it didn't exist when we started seven years ago. Stripe billing was not a product yet. Stripe had these great APIs, but there was no sort of subscription billing engine. So we started out building something that we knew there was a need for. Um, and that at least got us into the conversation with these technical founders early on. They were psyched about Stripe, but they knew that there was this subscription management layer on top of it that no one had delivered particularly well yet. So we sort of got a foot in the door there. I think a second part was we chose to focus on earlier stage companies. So there's a risk in, in any startup. It's not to, to say that their technology decisions aren't important, but it's very different to talk about taking on risk when your own company is risky, as opposed to if you were selling to established businesses where they could sort of lose everything if their, their infrastructure went down. Um, so that helped. 
And also, I think it did help. Our founding team came out of another tech startup in Boston that did very well and sort of had this big success story. So there was at least some degree of credibility where we could say, look, we've done this before. We built this product and scaled this company on it. We're going to acknowledge we're a startup and, and we're riskier than some of the other options on the market. But here are the reasons we think you might want to bet on us. You, you guys used to be freemium, didn't you? So um, I'd said it was recently changed from a freemium model to a free trial plus credit card sign-up system. What, what led that change? Yeah, huge, huge decision point in our company's history. In short, when we first launched and for probably the first four years we were in business, we had a freemium product that anyone could create an account, they could start using, and eventually they would sort of trip over a wire and move on to a, a paid plan that came from a good place. The underlying thought was, let's build the most customer-friendly sort of acquisition model that we possibly could. And we sell to these early stage startups that don't have money. Let's make it really easy for them to get started without any cost. It was 100% well-intentioned. And if I'm honest, I missed that model for those reasons. What it ended up doing was putting us in a place where we had hundreds, if not thousands of new companies trying out SETA every single month, integrating with all these different technologies. And we got a huge amount of support coming from non-paying customers to the extent that as a small bootstrap team, it was taking all of our time just responding to customer service requests and helping these, these non-paying customers integrate outside. Of course, some of them became customers and it was time well spent and that sort of thing. But we recognized that we were grinding the business to a halt by not adding some friction early on. And that eventually came, uh, we actually ran an experiment where we didn't even have a trial. We just pushed everybody to pay right away. That was sort of a, an overcorrection, if you will, trying to buy us some of our time back and puts you in a weird situation where you collect a payment from someone, they realize the product's not right for them for whatever reason, and then you have to refund them. So we ended up finding our way to this free trial model with a credit card up front. It's worked great in the sense that you know it shrinks your world intentionally. We have more time to spend with more committed customers. They can still get into the product and check it out and do an evaluation prior, but they very quickly are on a fast track to becoming a, a paying customer. So it just bought us our time back. But I am the first one to tell you, I acknowledge that that's a constraint in our business today. I, I sort of wonder what would happen if we were able to open up the top of the funnel again. So it's it's definitely something we're, we're thinking about and uh, trying to figure out how we can sort of have the best of both worlds. Have there been any other decisions sort of like that um, outside this history that have deliberately changed a core part of your process? There are two that that come to mind. One is we started out selling very specifically to developers and uh, technical founders building SaaS companies. About four years in, we were sort of discovered by the no-code community and very specifically people building on top of Webflow. And I wouldn't say that we pivoted, but I would say that we learned that we can provide that much more value to a less technical founder who doesn't have the skill set to build this perfectly integrated tech stack. So 
sort of the jobs that Outsetta is fulfilling, whether you're a developer or a no-coder are the same, but you don't really have an alternative if you're a no-coder. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know how to build this stuff. So um, we quickly realized that that was an opportunity that we needed to invest more time and effort on. And today our customer base is roughly split, but that was a pretty significant change in terms of just where we focused our energies. We, we realized there was this market we didn't set out to serve that we could actually serve better in most instances. Another one, which is a little harder to understand and sort of more difficult to realize the repercussions of, we started out as I said, like building Stripe billing because Stripe billing didn't exist. Two years into Outsetta, Stripe launched Stripe billing, which was, it still is today, very, very similar to what we offer. It's subscription management for, for Stripe. You can implement it with code. You can implement it without code. But that put us in a position where we had to sit there and say, do we continue building our own subscription management and invoicing tools? Or do we just say, Let's integrate with Stripe's own functionality. And in a lot of ways, choosing to integrate with, a, with Stripe may have been the right decision. Um, it would have just given us so much less code to maintain ourselves. We could have just relied on Stripe for those aspects of the product. And you can make a pretty compelling argument. It would have made our lives a lot easier. We chose not to do so. Uh, we chose very specifically to continue building our own subscription management and invoicing tools, largely because it means we can pass along cost savings to our customers. If you use Stripe billing, a lot of people don't know this, but you pay an additional 0.8% fee per transaction on top of Stripe's regular transaction fees. Without Seta, you don't pay that today. So we sort of made this decision of we're going to be able to pass along lower payment processing fees, longer term, lower than all of our competitors, which is still true to this day, but we're biting off a big undertaking in terms of this is code we need to maintain and continue to build and that sort of thing. So I honestly still don't know if that was the right decision or not, but those were sort of two other relatively pivotal uh, points in our journey. Do you have any tips for founders? Yeah, absolutely. My My biggest tip would be to simplify your, your vision and be willing to compromise on your vision of what you're trying to build. So the founders that I work with every single day that struggle the most are the founders that have a very specific vision of what they want their product to be, how they want it to operate, how they want to build their business. And any obstacle that comes in the way of that vision stops them in their tracks and they become obsessed with the idea that they can't proceed exactly the way that they wanted to, and everything becomes this big hurdle. The founders that are most successful just sort of recognize that there are going to be hiccups all along the way. And whenever a problem comes up, they're just like, okay, what's the fastest way around it? Even if it means I'm doing things differently than I initially set out to. Um, and I think that mindset shift is literally the difference between the successful founders and the unsuccessful founders. And there's so many ways that you see this manifested, but one of the big ones is pricing. Um, being a billing system, I talk to people about this all the time. I have founders that come to me and they've got a product idea, it might even be a good product idea. And they're like, we need to have this five-tiered pricing scheme where you know, if you take three actions in tier one, you automatically get upgraded to tier two, and then you get this add-on product. And then if your churn is 
less than 10%, we accelerate you into the next tier again. And they have this vision and it might even be a good vision of how they want things to eventually work. But the amount of work to set that kind of thing up kills their business. They spend months on this stuff before they even have anything out the door or will prove that anyone will pay for their thing. And the founders on the flip side of that are like, let's have a one-time product for 10 bucks and see if anyone buys it. And I think that that latter mindset um, just correlates so much more with success. It's like, how do we prove that someone will pay anything for this thing as quickly as possible? I know it's common startup advice, but so few founders like actually take it to heart. Well, thank you for this conversation, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun chatting. That was Jeff Roberts, the founder of Outsetter. If you're interested in hearing more about Outsetter, you can visit them at outsetter.com. Otherwise, for a one-time payment of $149, you can get an inside view of all of Jeff's work at Outsetter and tons of high-quality information to help you grow your own SaaS at jeffsmarketingexperiments.com. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to be notified of every future episode release, as well as be sent dozens of helpful articles to help you grow your own business, you can go to carlanderson.xyz and sign up for the newsletter. You can also reach out to me to help you grow your SaaS business at carl at carlanderson.xyz. Thank you so much for listening.